king and uh, prophet speaks to us now from his words. So read from Psalm uh, 21, which is on page 539 in your pew Bibles, which, again, the inspired superscription tells us is a psalm of David the king committed to the choir master for use in the public worship of God's people. It says, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High. He shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them appear, or you, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. And fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Congregation, uh, last week we looked at Psalm 20, now Psalm 21. One of the, the things that's, that's so clear in both of these psalms is the centrality of the king. You see it in Psalm 20. It's, it's all about the Lord saving his anointed. Now the psalm ends, if you look back at, at Psalm 20, verse 9, it, it ends, O Lord, save the king. And then 21 begins with the king rejoicing in God's strength. It speaks of him being given a crown and and reigning forever. And in these two psalms, we see very clearly what we call the Psalter's royal orientation, that the king is the central figure of this book, which we already saw back in in Psalm 2, at the very um, entryway into the Psalter, that its theme is a king against whom the nations rage, yet in whom... His people are blessed. And so as we move throughout the Psalms, the the eye of the Psalms is not every man, but the king. And if we miss this, then we end up individualizing them and reading them as if they are first and foremost about us, which not only robs the king of his glory, but robs us of their true significance. The Psalter is a royal hymn book with the Davidic covenant as its theme, teaching us to hope in God's Messiah. And in Psalm 21, it shows us that this Messiah being exalted so that he might bless and defend his people. Is exalted in answer to his prayer for the sake of his people and to the dismay 
of his enemies. Now, first, in answer to his prayer, you see that especially in verses 1 and 2, where David says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. You have given him the desires of his heart. You have not withheld the request of his lips. And notice how this, this points us back to Psalm 20 where the, king, the people under David, their king, had prayed that, that God would answer this future king and would grant his heart's desire and fulfill all his petitions. The prayer of Psalm 20 was that God would give the king his heart's desire and not withhold the request of his lips. And now we come to Psalm 21. And what are the people rejoicing in but the answered prayer of the king? We're to understand Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 as a pair. They go together. Both speak of of the king who is granted salvation. Psalm 20 ends with, with a prayer, Lord, save the king. 21 begins with him having been saved. 20 verse 4 speaks of of his heart's desire, may God grant it. And then 21 verse 2 says, you've given him his heart's desire. You've not withheld the request of his lips. The request of Psalm 20, where several blessings were invoked. And now in 21, it says you meet him with rich blessings. Do you see how the placement of these psalms leads us to read them together? Repeated words and concepts showing that this is not a randomly assorted collection of songs, but we're to read them in context the same way that we'd read any other book of the Bible. Psalm 21 is about God's answer to the prayer of Psalm 20, which means a few things. We we saw last week that Psalm 20 is, is messianic, that the king David prays for was not himself, but a future king who is identified in verse 6 as the Messiah, God's anointed. So now that, that Psalm 21 picks up where Psalm 20 left off, the implication is that the king of Psalm 21 is that same Messiah. This is how the Jews read Psalm 21. In fact, they even inserted in the Jewish Targum the word Messiah at verse 1. The ancient church read Psalm 21 this way. The reformers read Psalm 21 this way. It's about God's Messiah. We'll see as we look at the blessings that God bestows on him later in this psalm, even more clearly how this refers to Christ. But at this point, it's sufficient just to point out the way that the Spirit inspired even the organization of the psalm so that Psalm 21 would be placed next to Psalm 20 leads us to the conclusion that Psalm 21 is also about Christ, whose prayer God heard. His prayer in Psalm 20 that God would save him in his day of affliction and would raise him up from death to give him the nations that he would save his Messiah who offered himself, Psalm 20, verse 3, as a sacrifice. A sacrifice which God was pleased with, hearing his intercession and answering him. This psalm teaches us that God answers the prayers of his Messiah. It teaches us that he delights in hearing the prayers of his Son which, as we heard last week, also has implications for us. That when we align our prayers with Christ's and and say, Father, fulfill his petitions, he will. It, it, It teaches us to pray Christ's prayers back to God. 
to do office prayers, as you continue in prayer, that the way that the, the church order calls you to, if you look at the, the duties of elders and the duties of deacons, both begin with continuing in prayer. And so as you do that, a, a, a psalm pair like these teaches you to make Christ's prayers for his people your prayers for Christ's people. To go to a place like, like John 17 where we see Christ interceding on behalf of his church and make his prayer your prayer. To pray his prayers back to God on behalf of his people. That he would keep them from evil. That, that he would make us one as Jesus prays in John 17. Well, moms, as you think of Mother's Day, this too applies to you, that, that God delights in hearing the prayers of his son. And so as you pray for your children... Pray the prayers of of Christ for them. Psalm 21, in its placement next to Psalm 20, teaches us the kinds of prayers that God answers, the prayer that is aligned with with the heartbeat of the prayers of his son. Calvin says one of the uses of Psalm 21 is to make us see that God will not reject our prayers for his people since our heavenly king has gone before us in making intercession for them. So that in praying for the church, we are only endeavoring to follow Christ's example. He says Psalm 21 is given to assure us as we pray that God will hear. So elders and deacons, mothers and fathers, let this psalm encourage you to pray. As you do, to to align your prayers with, with Christ's prayers. And then when God answers, to rejoice. Psalm calls us to rejoice in the answered prayers of the king and the answered prayers of his people and to thank God specifically for the, the requests that he has not withheld. Notice Psalm 20 doesn't just skip right past Psalm 21 to Psalm 22, but it takes a moment to give thanks for the prayers that God has answered in the previous psalm. And so we're taught here, we're instructed by, by the king's example to thank God specifically for answered prayers. Do you thank God specifically when he answers your prayers? Do you take a moment to thank him for the prayers that he has answered rather than just just rushing off to the next thing? Psalm 21 calls us to and to rejoice. Rejoice in answered prayer and to rejoice specifically Because God has exalted his Messiah king. There's that exaltation in verses 3 through 7. Where he is exalted not just for the sake of himself, but for the sake of his people. Look at me there, verse 3. says that he has met with rich blessings. After the day of his affliction, back in, in Psalm 20... Psalm 20, verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble or day of of affliction or distress. After that day of his affliction, God exalts him after the sacrifice of himself. It says God meets him by pouring rich blessings out upon him. It says that he takes a crown of gold and he places it on, on his head, exalting him as king so that he might enter into a new stage of messianic glory, now exalted in the sight of all, vindicated by heaven. We're to understand this as Christ's ascension, his ritual enthronement, where the presence of God in heaven, which is what verse 6 and, and verse 3 imply, 
is crowned in the sight of all. That crown of thorns, which he wore on Good Friday, is now exchanged for a crown of finest gold. As we we sometimes sing in number 376, the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. This is what we gather to celebrate on Thursday. The public crowning of the messianic king who suffered. Who Psalm 20 verse 3 offered himself as a sacrifice in our place. It is now exalted in glory for us. Not just temporarily, but verse 4, forever. It says he asked of you and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. So apparently part of the king's prayer was that God would give him life, and that he does. He, he raises him up and enthrones him as king to reign forever. This is a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God said to David in verse 13, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This speaks not just of some human king, but of an eternal king. Our Lord Jesus, the son of David, their promised, whose kingdom, signified by that crown in verse 3, will be forever. In fact, not just forever, but forever and ever, it says. This is an endless kingdom in fulfillment of that promise made to David, or the king who is exalted will be clothed, verse 5, with splendor and majesty, and his glory made great through the salvation that God gives him. What verse 5 is saying is is that the greatness of his glory will actually be increased through the things that he suffers. Because his glory is made great through God's salvation of him on his his day of affliction. This is the very thing that we just read in in the call to worship in Hebrews chapter 2. Where it says, uh, quoting from Psalm 8, that he will be crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Not in spite of it, not not as as a mere consolation after the fact, but because of it. One theologian says, God gave Jesus a magnitude of glory that he could not have had unless God saved him. Because of the cross and resurrection, Jesus is more famous, more impressive, and more glorious than he would have been if he had lived his life in peace. There is a greatness to the glory of the Son of Man that could only be manifest through a display of his suffering obedience. The other side of which God gave him a name above every other name, exalting him to the highest place, declaring him to be the Son of God in power. Philippians 2 and and, and Hebrews 2 make clear that Jesus is glorified in a greater way because of what he suffered. His resurrection ascension is is the entrance into a new stage of messianic glory that would not have occurred had God not allowed him to suffer and die and then be raised and saved by God's power. Because of the things he suffered in his incarnation and crucifixion, he is now crowned with a, a splendor and majesty that's even greater. And it's interesting, those two words for splendor and majesty actually came up earlier in the Psalms in Psalm 8, where David spoke of the glorious majesty of the Son of Man who would be given dominion over all creation. 
And by using that same language, David is here hinting that the king of Psalm 21 is that same king of Psalm 8, who in Psalm 8 rules over um, uh, uh, heaven and earth as, as, um, as Adam was meant to rule over all creation, over the beasts of the field and, and uh, everything of the seas. Psalm 8 presented for us a king who would come and, and do what Adam was supposed to do. And now Psalm 21 is saying, this king is that same king crowned with glory and honor as the fulfillment of God's vision for humanity. Ruling not just for the sake of himself, but verse 6, when it says you make him blessed forever, if you're, you're following along in the ESV, you might notice a little footnote there. It says, or you make him a, a source of blessing forever. The idea is, is that God makes him so full of blessing that, that he overflows in blessing to others in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that his offspring would bless the nations. God so meets him with blessing, verse 3, that he becomes an over, overflowing wellspring of blessing to others. Mediating God's blessing to us is not just the son of David, not just the son of man from Psalm 8, but the son of Abraham, who now exalted as king with rich blessings bestowed on him, becomes a source of blessing to us. That's why I said this exaltation is not just for the sake of himself, but for his people. Isn't that what we confess in our catechism? Lord's day 18, that he is there in heaven on our behalf. This is the very thing that we see in Psalm 21, that his exaltation in glory is for the benefit of his people. That's why they so look forward to it here in Psalm 21. That's why they are rejoicing in it. That's why this is where they place their hope. Because his gladness and the joy of God's presence spills over to us as his unshakable, immovable enthronement in heaven, verse 7, guarantees that the blessings our ascended king mediates to us will not end. But even as he reigns forever, they will continue always. As to the steadfast love of the Most High, our king shall not be moved. As he trusts in the Lord, he is not subject to the turbulence of the kingdoms of this world, but God has raised him up forever. And again, so it is with his people. As Calvin said, whatever blessings of the faithful attribute to their king belong to the whole body. So there is made here a promise common to all God's people to keep us tranquil in the various storms that agitate the world. Calvin says the world turns round and round, as it were, on a wheel by which it comes to pass that those who are raised to the top are brought to the bottom in but a moment. But here it is promised that the kingdom of Christ shall not be moved. These blessings that are given to the king are given to him as the head of his people. And so we shall not be moved. But the king will continue to mediate his blessings to us as the son of man, son of David, and son of Abraham. And the way that he does this, the way that our ascended king becomes a source of blessing to us is in part by sending out his word through the office bearers whom he gifts his church. Ephesians chapter 4 says, when he ascended, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the perfecting of the saints, and for the building up of the body. 
In other words, the way that our ascended king becomes a source of blessing to us is through the officers whom he gives his church, through whom he is pleased to exercise his rule, and to whom the keys of the kingdom are entrusted. In fact, I was struck by that even just in in reading the, the form that we read a moment ago. May God give us to see in the ministry of the elders the supremacy of our ascended king. That's, that's the very thing that, that, we, that we're, we're seeing here in Psalm 21, the supremacy of the king who mediates his blessing to us. And according to Paul in the New Testament, the way that he does that is through the officers whom he gives his church. So as I was, I was uh, preparing for this occasion and, and wrestling with how does, how does Psalm 21 fit with, with this occasion, that I was struck with the fact that, that Psalm 21 is ultimately about the ascension of Jesus. And Ephesians 4 says that ascension is so that he might pour out blessing on his church to the officers that he gives her. In fact, that the very kingdom that we see here envisioned is advanced through the work of these office bearers. And the old Blue Psalter's um, translation of the Belgian Confession, it says that the officers of Christ's church are set apart for the propagation of true doctrine. For the, for the spread and advance of the gospel of the kingdom. And so the vision of Psalm 21 for the ascension and enthronement of the king and the advance of his kingdom throughout the world is intimately tied to the very thing that we've just witnessed here today. The, the ascended king setting apart these men to oversee the purity of the doctrine, to, to free the, the, the minister to labor in the word, and to collect gifts for the support of the ministry both here and abroad. Which is why one commentator says, interestingly, that Psalm 21 is appropriate for the installation and ordination of new officers in the church applicable to those who exercise authority in it on Christ's behalf for the blessing of his people. And so, brothers, as you've been set apart for this work, uh, recognize that it is entrusted to you by our ascended king for the blessing of his people and for the advance of his kingdom. Even as Christ has rich blessings and gifts bestowed upon him and uses those for the service of those whom he serves, recognize that the gifts that the Lord has given you are not for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of his church, whom he's set you apart today to serve. And even as you recognize from this psalm that he set you apart for the blessing of his people and for the advance of this same kingdom that we see here in Psalm 21, be encouraged that this kingdom is forever. That's the last thing that we see in verses 8 through 12. This kingdom will not be defeated, but will overcome all of the king's enemies. This Messiah is exalted in answer to his prayer. He's exalted for the sake of his people. He is exalted to the dismay of his enemies. David says this king who is exalted will find out All his enemies, he will make them as a blazing oven. He will swallow them in his wrath and consume them. He will destroy their descendants and put them to flight, aiming his bow at their heads. Even as Psalm 2 spoke of God exalting his messianic king, and we've seen that in verses 3 to 7, so now verses 8 through 12 echo Psalm 2's enthroned king, dashing his enemies to pieces Like a potter's vessel, his wrath quickly kindled, and they perish in the way. 
That's what we see in verses 8 through 12. Here it illustrated by one uh, commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, in sort of an interesting way. He, uh, commenting on these verses, tells the story of an old Scottish preacher in the 1700s named Alexander Pope. Pope served in a town where the uh, local tavern tended to, to draw quite a crowd. And so one Sunday night, as he was uh, sitting outside his parsonage, uh, right next door to the tavern, it says, um, Davis, as he relays this story, says a couple of, of inebriates or, or drunks invited Pope to join them. The Pope refused, like a good Scottish Presbyterian, rebuked them for desecrating the Lord's Day and so a couple minutes later, they, they came back out with several of their intoxicated associates uh, looking for trouble and, and offered him a drink, which again he refused. And so they took the, the glass of whiskey and they, they hurled it at his head and then uh, came lunging toward him, not realizing that uh, Mr. Pope carried a small club with him, with which he then dropped the man who was lunging toward him to the ground. Uh, several more then tried to attack him and met the same fate and uh, Davis says the, the sight of several brutes splattered on the ground, groaning in agony, restored enough sobriety to dissipate the crowd. It was all quite simple. If Mr. Pope was to stay on his feet, they must be knocked off theirs. If he was to remain in one piece, some skulls had to be cracked. If it sounds brutal, the principle is clear. If the kingdom comes... Opposition crumbles. If the kingdom triumphs, all that despises, opposes, and assails it must be taken out. I'm not commenting either way on what Pope did, but simply using it to illustrate what we see in Psalm 21. Or what we see in Psalm 2, or really all throughout the Psalter. If the kingdom comes, opposition crumbles. If the kingdom triumphs, all that despises it must be destroyed. This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer and and confess in Lord's Day 48, destroy the devil's work and every force which revolts against you, every conspiracy against your holy word until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. That's what Psalm 21 envisions. In keeping with the vision of Psalm 2. And keeping not only with the vision of Psalm 2, but with with the the very first gospel promise of Genesis chapter 3. That the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and his seed. In fact, we see in this psalm a couple of allusions back to that promise. Notice in verse 12. uh, Where are these enemies going to be struck? But in the face. In the head. Not only them, but their offspring with them. Verse 10, the the seed of the serpent. These are allusions back to that first gospel promise. Every time you see the psalmist praying for the heads of God's enemies to be struck, he is praying for God to do what he said he would in Genesis chapter 3. And Psalm 21 assures us he will. And and, and by so assuring us, it admonishes us to patience. Patience. That though the enemies of the king may burn with hatred against his kingdom, they will not prevail. But our king will be the victor. They will swallow them up, verse 9, the time of his wrath. It's literally how verse 9 reads. It's, it's pointing to a day, to a, a fixed time when the king will appear. 
And Calvin says it admonishes us to patiently bear the cross as long as it pleases God to exercise and humble us under it. And if he does not seem immediately to send forth his power to learn to extend our hope to the time that he's appointed and remember that he has not forgotten. Be encouraged, verse 11, that their plans will not succeed. You see that there at the end of verse 11. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Spurgeon says when we read the boastful threatenings of the enemies of the gospel at present, we may close our reading by cheerfully repeating, they will not succeed. The serpent may hiss, but his head is broken. These closing verses give us the comfort of knowing Christ's kingdom will not be defeated. Even as his divine power strikes fear into his enemies, it is a sweet consolation to us who are protected by it. And so as you look around at the state of the world and you find yourself worrying, let Psalm 21 ease your anxiety and console you. The king is on the throne. He is coming again and will put all his enemies to flight. He will be exalted in his strength and we will sing and praise his power. Even as you men begin your terms as deacon, as elder, Be comforted that whatever opposition may come, whatever opposition you may face, either from without or within, will not ultimately prevail. But the king is on the throne to bless his enemies and put, to to bless his people and put his enemies to flight. From this, verse 13, we draw comfort and we praise him. We praise him for answering Christ's prayer. We praise him for giving Christ glory, honor, and blessing, and we praise him for making him a source of blessing to us and for ruling and defending us against all his enemies until that day we will sing and praise his power when his kingdom fully comes and he will be all in all. We rejoice in this and we pray to this end that Christ's kingdom would ever increase and his blessing forever be mediated with his people, even now through these men who've been set apart for service in Christ's church. So congregation, you pray for them as they are Christ's appointed means to mediate that blessing of verse 6. You pray for them as, as they engage in that spiritual battle in verses 8 through 12. That they would do so, verse 1 and verse 13, in God's strength. And you pray that as they do, you would honor them. As an extension of the rule of the one in Psalm 21, to whom all authority is given. Not despising their admonitions. Not refusing their visits or ignoring them, but honoring the ascended Christ of Psalm 21 by honoring them. Rejoicing in Christ's kingship by rejoicing in the way that he chooses to exercise it through office bearers whom he appoints and to whom he entrusts the keys of the kingdom. He will be exalted in his strength. We will sing and praise his power forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for how you have exalted your king and honored him with splendor and majesty, crowned him with glory and honor, not just for the sake of himself, 
but that he might become a source of blessing even to us. Even now to these men who've been set apart to serve in his kingdom, Lord, we pray that they would do so in your strength. Even as the king trusted your strength, even as our strong king looked to you for strength, we pray that we who are uh, comparatively far, far weaker would look to you and follow the example of our king in seeking our strength, not in ourselves, but in you. Lord, even as we pray this for these men, we also pray that, that even as we, your people, rejoice in Christ's kingship, even as we rejoice in his ascension, which we gather again later this week to celebrate, that we would also rejoice in the way that he chooses to exercise his kingship through these ordained officers whom he gives to us as gifts. Help us, Lord, to see them as gifts. Help us to see them as an expression, an extension of the kindness of our King who is ascended in heaven on our behalf to bless us. Lord, we pray that through their work and shepherding and serving your flock and allowing for the propagation of the gospel, the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed kingdom of Christ advanced, that this one you have clothed with splendor and majesty would indeed be exalted in all the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.